Well, I guess I have one other thing maybe that I was going to make mention of before we jump into our sermon. I want to take just a brief moment to acknowledge that there have been some significant headlines in the news. I don't know if you've noticed this over the past few days. There were some really controversial, some really um, hot topic things that have been going on with uh, our Supreme Court over the past several days. And one of the great theologians of the 20th century said, great preachers need to have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other hand, using the scriptures to interpret the stories. And what he meant by that was, we have to become the kinds of people in church that actually engage with the world around us. We can't come in here and pretend like the rest of the world is not actually going on in the way that it is, that we actually want to have a lens of faith through which we are interpreting and and exploring and reflecting on that which is going on in the world. And I'm not going to say anything controversial here. So everybody, let your anxiety go down. Let your heart rate just kind of (laughs) take a deep breath. But I wanted to say just one thing here. I find it unhelpful for our church not to discuss what's going on in the outside world. Um, To do so is sort of, for me, pastorally, to allow people other than the church and the scriptures to speak into the ways that we ought to reflect and think about things. And I refuse to cede that responsibility to newscasters and Twitter posts and Facebook feeds and all of those types of things. But as I was discussing with a pastor just yesterday, I find for me both supporting the equality and agency of women as well as the dignity of the unborn to be an incredibly lonely place. And it seems to me that for many of us, there's this tension, and really for our world, there's this tension that exists between these two values. And I want to say that as we think about and speak about such things, we need to be wise, and we need to be charitable, and we need to be generous. Because we don't know people's experiences, we don't know what people carry around with them in their lives. And to speak in a harsh or brash way can be incredibly hurtful, even if we have truth on our side. And I would love to do a whole sermon on the complex nature of ethics and and how it's not black and white, as many of us are well aware of. We can have values and ideas like, yes, I believe in this and I value this. And you're like, all right, well, let's live that out. And you're like, wow, this is very complex all of a sudden. (laughs) And it doesn't seem so straightforward in many ways. But as we speak and interact with our neighbors within our church, I want us to do it kindly. Is that okay? I know that the sort of spirit of the world that we're living is like hostile, aggressive. That is not to be the marks of Christian people, even when we speak truth, okay? And if you want to talk more about this, we can talk more about it. But I don't want to say much more than that. I was like thinking about it. I'm like, this could be a whole sermon that we could get into real quick, but we are not going to do that. But we are in this time in the Christian calendar in this portion of the year that is known as ordinary time. And as boring and as mundane as that sounds, quite frankly, I wish that the weeks felt that way. (laughs) I wish that things were boring. I wish things were like rhythmic. I wish things were routine and ordinary and unexciting in many ways. I felt like the past two and a half years has just been anything but ordinary Because we're in this moment of significant cultural shifts and we all feel it, don't we? 
Like, this is not the world that I grew up in. This is not the country I grew up in. This is not the church that I remember growing up in. This everything feels like it's shifting underneath our feet. And a question that emerges for people of faith in moments like these is how do we maintain steadfastness for people as people of faith when things seem so turbulent? Do we have an anchor that can hold us steady while the waters around us are choppy, to say the least. And we are in just the third week of this series in which we are exploring Ezra and Nehemiah. And one of the reasons why I wanted us to examine and explore these books is because they have a word for us for what it means to live in moments like these. What does it mean to be the kind of people, to be God's people who stay the chorus in the face of change and setbacks and disappointments, and barriers, and tensions, and even, yes, in here, in Ezra, we won't get into it, political pushback on things. But this morning, I've titled my sermon, The Habit of Worship. Because I think in the midst of all of this, what we have to discover and see if you just want the message and now you could go to sleep for the rest of the time while I'm speaking up here, is worship needs to be the habit of God's people. It is the anchor that forms us and that sets our trajectory and our chorus well. And to ground us this morning, I want to invite you to read with me Ezra chapter 2, verse 68 through chapter 3, verse 7. I invite you to hear the word of the Lord this morning, church. Ezra writes these words, When they arrived at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the leaders of families gave offerings to rebuild the temple of God on the same site as before. According to their resources, they gave to the building fund 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly robes. All the Israelites settled in their hometowns. The priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, along with some of the other people, settled in their own towns as well. In the seventh month, after the Israelites were settled in their hometowns, they met together in Jerusalem. Then Yeshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests joined Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. Man, I thought I was going to get through all those names. I'm sorry. I should have practiced more. And began to build the altar of the God of Israel where they could offer burnt offerings just as it is written in the teachings of Moses, the man of God. Even though they were afraid of the people living around them, they built the altar where it had been before, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord morning and evening. Then, to obey what was written, they celebrated the Feast of Shelters, the Feast of Booths. They they offered the right number of sacrifices for each day of the festival. After the, the Feast of Shelters, they had regular sacrifices every day, as well as sacrifices for the new moon and all the festivals commanded by the Lord. Also, there were special offerings brought as gifts to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to bring burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Join me in a quick word of prayer. God, we long to hear from you this morning. We have come expecting to hear from you this morning, and we have come in faith. We have come in faith that you can use instruments like these and voices like ours 
our prayers, our reports to somehow speak into our lives. Not just to speak, but to change our lives with your word. And so we ask, God, would you make our hearts and our ears receptive to your voice? May we be familiar with the voice of Jesus this morning. And as he commands, may we have the courage to obey. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me give a quick recap of the book of Ezra and where we're at currently. The people of God at this point, they had been in exile for 70 years. That is, their nation had been conquered by the Babylonian Empire, and they had, the people had, been exported to the capital city of the Babylonian Empire so that they would assimilate into the culture, so that they would lose their identities as the people of God and become little Babylonians, that they would learn the language, that they would eat the foods, that they would worship the gods, that they would celebrate the holidays, that they would dress in the clothes is that the point was to eradicate their distinctiveness. And if you ever hear people talk about Israel or God's people being in exile, it's talking about this period of time when the Israelites are displaced from their land and in Babylon. But as Jeremiah prophesied, 70 years after they're they're sent into captivity, the Babylonians are conquered by the Persian Empire, and the Persian Empire permits the Israelites to return to the promised land, to return to Jerusalem. For those familiar with the Bible or the Old Testament and the Exodus story, this return that we find in Ezra is known as the second Exodus. It's the second time in the scriptures where God's people are released from captivity and permitted to return to the promised land. And just like in the first Exodus where the Egyptians gave the Israelites gold and supplies as they left Egypt, the Babylonians give the Israelites materials that they need to rebuild their nation and the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And in the same way that that first Exodus, God's people weren't just called out of slavery so that they can be free, they were called out of slavery so that they could be a holy people set apart for God that they would be the people through whom God would bless the world. So too, God's people are called in this second second exodus, not just freedom for freedom's sake, freedom so that they might live holy lives dedicated unto God, that they might be a blessing to the nations and to the world. And so when they return to Jerusalem in the story, they return to a completely ruined city. All of their homes are destroyed. All of Jerusalem has been burned to the ground, including the temple. They are essentially returning back to scratch. It's a blank canvas, tabla rasa, right? Like we have to rebuild this thing from the ground up. And where our text picks up this morning are the initial activities of these formerly exiled Israelites returning to Jerusalem. And it's a curious thing to me that when they return to Jerusalem, the first thing that they do is that they give 61,000 derricks of gold and 5,000 minas of silver for the construction of the temple. Now, that doesn't really mean anything to us, right? Like, I don't know, what does that mean? What's a a derrick? What's a mina? I don't know. I couldn't tell you either. I have really no idea. But historically, we know that's about 1,100 pounds of gold 
and 6,000 pounds of silver. Or to put it into today's currency, that's $26 million of gold and $1.5 million of silver that these poor, formerly exiled Israelites give to the effort of rebuilding the temple. And so we're going to start a financial campaign this morning. I'm just kidding. No, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. Take off all your good. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm kidding. We're not that kind of church. But it makes you wonder, right? With all that needs to be rebuilt in Jerusalem and in the nation, all of the development that needs to happen, the construction of the city, homes, grocery stores, farms, they even need to get their target up and running, right? You got to get Amazon infrastructure and roads built in so you can have your 48-hour delivery. Why would you commit so many resources, so much capital to the construction of your place of worship? Aren't there more important things to do? That seems so incongruent, if I can be frank, of the casual nature many of us feel, our culture and the culture of the church, not you who are here, obviously you're here, right? But if we step back and we just thought, it seems like worship is sort of important in the world today, but sort of not. I heard this story of a Nazarene theology professor when he teaches a class on they call it ecclesiology if you need like a, you know, what do they call it, like an $11 word this morning to make your time worth it in the sermon. It's just a study of the church. But he offers, when he teaches his class, three statements right at the beginning that create some angst and tension in the room every single time he delivers this lecture. And the statements are these ones here on the screen. The first one is this, you can go to church and not be a Christian. And everyone's like, amen, that's absolutely true. Number two is going to church does not make you a Christian. And everyone's like, yeah, for sure. I know lots of those people. And the third one is you cannot be a Christian if you do not regularly worship communally with the body of believers. You cannot be a Christian if you do not regularly worship communally with the body of believers. Only one of these statements causes pushback in the classes where he presents this lecture. And I imagine it's the same one that made you raise your eyebrows as I looked even across this room that you're a little skeptical about that third statement. I cannot be a Christian if I do not regularly worship communally with the body of believers. What? Our immediate reflex is to reject statements like these. If I had a dollar for every time someone told me that they didn't have to go to church to be a Christian, I'd be like a thousand heir or something like that. I have like $329, right? But we resist such claims because it comes across to us like a type of spiritual legalism that many have been hurt by in the church in their personal histories. It feels like the kind of rules-based religion that many of us detest and resist. And we too can think of the many scenarios by which people would not be able to regularly participate in communal worship. What about the elderly who have physical limitations to get to church? What if you were really hurt by a church? Like really hurt, not just like they hurt my feelings, although that matters too, but I mean some of the things that we've heard in recent weeks, months, and years about what goes on in some churches. 
It conflicts with our busy schedules. Sorry, got vacation. But here's the thing, church. The vast, 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 and I could say that infinitum, majority of Christians for the past 2,000 years in every place, in every culture, has participated in communal worship. Not only have they participated, they have valued communal worship and gathering. Justin Martyr was a Christian philosopher from the second century, and he wrote this book called The First Apology, which was an apologetic, if you will, defending uh, the Christian faith within the Roman Empire of his day so that perhaps maybe they would stop persecuting the Christians in the second century, true persecution. But in that work, he wrote around 155 AD, he describes the activity of Christians. What is it like? What is the life like for Christians? And he writes these words. He says, and on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. That's the Bible. Then when the reader has ceased, the president, we might say pastor, verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray. And as we before said, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought. And the president or the pastor in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability. And the people assent saying, amen. And there is a distribution to each. It's one of the earliest records of a church service that we have in history. You see, for the past 2,000 years, Christians have been gathering on Sunday in one place, reading scripture, listening to sermons, a lot of them bad, receiving communion, and giving thanks to God. And the witness of that past two millennia, 20, century, or <laughs> 20 centuries of tradition reminds us of something we don't often consider, and that is this, individuals do not get to decide what it means to be a Christian. I do not get to decide what it means to be a Christian or what it is that Christians do. You do not get to define it yourself. The Christian faith is a received faith, which means we don't get to just make it up from scratch. It was something we were handed and are responsible to steward faithfully. And part of what we've been handed to, steward, is a 2,000-year-long tradition of gathering with the community of faith to worship the one true living God who was revealed to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. And the practice, this practice of gathering matters because of how natural it is for people to worship. Worship, if I were to offer a definition, something like this, the act of ascribing ultimate worth toward a thing. See, when Christians gather for worship, we gather to give God the God revealed in Christ Jesus worth and value, ultimate worth and value. We gather to give God praise because of God's goodness and beauty and gentleness and care and mercy and grace because there is nothing better in existence than God. And this kind of worship is not unique to Christians, by the way, or even religious people. Everybody worships. Everybody ascribes something as the most important thing. 
as the most worthy thing, as the ultimate thing for one's life. As I heard one writer put it, people don't get to determine whether or not they worship, only what it is they will worship. People determine what will form them, not if they will be formed. Some people worship Jesus or Allah or Krishna. Others ascribe worth and value to power, wealth, beauty, fame. We could go down the whole list of things. But there are two things that we need to be mindful of as we think about worship. And the first is this. Worship forms us. Worship forms us. It's in the act of worship, in the ascribing worth, that our love for God is formed and shaped. As much as worship is an expression of our love of our God, it is the means by which our love for God begins to be formed, if that makes sense. We often think of worship as a gift that we bring and set before God, that we are the primary actors or agents or participants in worship, but what we have failed to appreciate at times is that the primary actor, agent of of worship is God. God is the one at work in worship. That is this, if I could summarize it. The thing being worshipped shapes the worshiper. Here's an illustration. Imagine with me for a minute. Anybody know what this is? That's a double-double. And then there's somebody who clearly wants a double-double on the right, but they're like trying to lose a few pounds, right? But... Think of, with me for a moment, a double-double just down the street. It feels like every Nazarene church that I have pastored in, by the way, is right down the street from In-N-Out. In Santa Barbara, here in Ventura, and even in Long Beach. Think of a delicious double-double with animal-style fries and a Neapolitan shake, which is my absolute favorite, is the only way to get a shake there. See, we think that when we choose to eat this meal... That this delicious, never-frozen patty, hamburger, freshly cut french fries from the potatoes there dropped in the greaser as you're watching it, we think that we are the primary agents or actors in this exchange, right? After all, hamburgers don't even have a mind. They don't have a will or anything. How could they form or impose themselves on us, the decision makers? But if you choose to eat that meal... Over and over and over and over and over again, you will realize that that double-double and Neapolitan shake and french fries, it will form you. Literally, it is forming me. The older I get, it is forming me. Amen? Anybody else? All right. Literally will physically form you. This is what happens in worship. As we ascribe ourselves, as we give ourselves to a thing that we think as ultimate, we are formed by that thing. We take the shape of that thing. Our love, our desires are formed by that thing. And this makes sense of why Jesus uses this imagery of fruit and trees, right? You will know his disciples because of the fruit that they bear in their lives, not the ideas that they profess. Nobody, nobody says, like, by the theological convictions that they maintain. No, by the fruit, you will know the tree. Because if you follow Jesus, if you make him ultimate, if he is front and center in your life, your life will bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. 
That is the nature of worship. And the question is, what is formed in us, right? When we direct our lives to anything other than God, what is formed in us when we direct our lives towards wealth or fame or stuff? We love stuff. I love stuff. I love Amazon or beauty. Because what we worship will form us. The second thing that we need to know about worship, though, is that worship is always done through story. Worship at its heart tells a story and it's an invitation for you to join a story. The way we choose to give something worth or value is always done through a story. This is what, by the way, commercials are all about. Inviting you into a story so that you will give your attention, you will give your worship, you will ascribe value to a thing. I jumped onto YouTube uh, a while ago, and the first YouTube, you know how you get those ads on YouTube, right? I was like, all right, I'm going to use this illustration. Surely this has got to fit, so I'm just going to jump on. And there was this ad that went this way. This is the first video or kind of that pops up there, and there was this slow zoom-in shot inside of a cabin in the woods. And in this first shot were two chairs on either side of a table with the checkers game uh, in between the chairs. His voice came over the video and said, this is the checkers game where grandson and granddad will bond. But a much better voice, right? I don't have a deep voice. Then the next shot was of the kitchen, right? And, and the, the same voice says, and this is the kitchen where the new boyfriend will unofficially become family. Then there was a series of shots of different homes and people in them. And this gentle voice says, these are the Verbo vacation homes waiting for you to fill with your family. Your together awaits, right? You see, the call to worship is always situated within a story. People don't end up ascribing worth or value to wealth because they're greedy, because they just love stuff. They get caught up into worship of money because of a story. This will protect and secure my family and my future. Car commercials don't sell you on a car by describing the car. Like, hey, let me tell you about the nuts and bolts on this thing. No, <laughs> they sell you on a story. Imagine yourself winding through the mountains away from your neighbor's job and traffic Spending $50 a gallon on gas, it will free you from your stress. This is the way that worship works. It's the invitation to a story. And it's the way that communal Christian worship works as well. The structure of our communal worship service isn't about empty religious ritual. It is an invitation into the story of the gospel we start every Sunday morning with a call to worship as a reminder that God calls us to God's self. We are never the initiators of worship. We don't make that choice apart from God's invitation and grace. We are called by God like the disciples were called by Christ Jesus. Come, follow me. We hear his teaching in the scriptures and in the sermon, trying to discern God's voice through the voice of the preacher we respond to the gracious invitation to live with God by joining him at the table. and being reconciled to God, we find peace in our lives. This is why we ought to confess our sins before we come to the table, to experience the forgiveness of God. 
But we also discover in worship, in communal worship, that we have been adopted into a new family. We have brothers and sisters and aunties and uncles that we didn't even know that we had that looked different from us. And we give thanks to God for the good work that he is doing in us and in the world. And we give of our tithes and offerings of our lives. And then we are sent into the world to be Christian kinds of people. This is a story that Christians are to be formed by, called by God, respond to God, give to God, be sent by God. And our participation in communal worship is the way that we resist. Worshiping things other than God. I, uh, I was reading this essay this week, and we'll kind of wrap up here because, man, I've been preaching too long lately. Is it too long? All right, it's all right. Garrett just said, yeah, man, kind of wrap it up. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't do that. I was reading this essay this week by this uh, really great novelist, Wendell Berry, and by a really great novelist, I mean, like, I've read a couple things by him, and everyone else says that he's great, so I don't, I don't know. But in this, this essay, he talks about how when people face a large problem in the world, they often want a solution that feels as large as the problem that they are facing, right? But he said the, the, the thing is, the truth of the matter is, that big problems are often solved by a bunch of small little decisions that we would make over time. So for example, take my lack of fitness. The other day I walked up like a flight of stairs and I was like, <sighs> right? And how many of us, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we look at our fitness or we get up a flight of stairs, we're like, man, I'm out of shape. You think, I want to get in shape. And so what do we do? We go get the gym membership, we go throw away all the ice cream out of the freezer and fridge, and we can, we're like, we're going to go, I'm going to lay out a whole schedule of what I'm going to do every single day and work out two hours a day, and I'm going to do aerobic here and anaerobic stuff here, and the hope is if I make this massive change, that maybe it'll address this big problem that I'm facing with my health, and what happens when we try to do that, Right? Like a week later, we're like, oh, no, it's too hard. <laughs> You're like, I'm done with this. How many, how many of us have started and you just quit, right? I do this once a month. I go for a run. I'm like, Paige, I'm going to go for a run. And I go for like eight miles for some reason. I, the next day, I'm just like, I can't even walk. I'm like, my body is not youthful anymore as much as Becky says I'm young. What you actually need probably is just to exercise maybe 20 minutes a day for like three days a week, right? And just do that for like a few months. And then maybe you just cut out, not all of the dessert. Who wants to get rid of all the ice cream? You just cut out like maybe one evening of ice cream, right? Which in our house is, that's a lot. That's a lot, whatever it is. But it's a lot of small decisions done over and over and over and over again. That eventually, given enough time, it transforms the body. And the same is true with your soul and your spirit. So many, so many of us, we come to worship and we recognize that who we want to be is like way out here. And so we're constantly trying to find like what's the big solution that's going to fix that? So let me go to the church with like the huge band and they're really loud and they make me cry. The pastor makes me cry every single Sunday and it like moves me. Or let me just like dive all in with the child. I'm going to be at church like every day during, you know, the week, every opportunity that I can. And I want to say yes, maybe, maybe. But maybe we just come to worship every single week 
faithfully reenacting this story of the gospel and to allow it to form us. See, when we come to the communion table, we used to do this, but like I got a little pushback, but I'll, I'm going to push back here. We used to do this prayer of confession before we'd come to the table. And the reason why we do that every single week is to remind ourselves that I'm a person who's needing forgiveness, who needs forgiveness. I need forgiveness. I need forgiveness. I need grace. Because you know what happens over time as we live that way? I go out in my life and there's people who hurt me. And you know what my default response is over time? Oh, they need forgiveness. Now I'm a person of grace and forgiveness out in the world. That can actually heal people. That can heal relationships. But all of it starts in worship. May it be so, and maybe Christ be formed in us as a congregation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite the worship team to come forward. Um, We're going to come to what I consider to be the most formative (laughs) practice that we engage with as the body of Christ every single week. That is the table here. It is a reminder to us that God is a God of grace and of love. That God is a God of healing and forgiveness, of reconciliation and redemption, of second, third, fourth, fiftieth chances again and again and again. And if you are in need of that this morning, the table is open for you. If you are a Christ follower and you are longing to be with God, know that God wants to be with you. And may this meal remind you and form you to the person that God is creating you to be. I invite our ushers to come forward. It might just be me and you, Bobby. That would be good. I love serving communion this morning.